Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast on same-day joint replacements. I'm Jennifer Darby, and I'll give you a little background about myself. I am a physical therapist. I work in home health, and I work do some outpatient as well, and I've been a clinical adjunct instructor for Summit for about five years, almost five years now. And I'm excited to bring you this podcast today on same-day joint replacements. As we know, there have been a lot of changes that have occurred in same-day joint replacements and a lot of recent updates and surgeons updating techniques and certainly the days of joint replacements that go into rehab um, or even stay overnight in a hospital are getting less and less and we're seeing fewer and fewer of those cases and I find many more cases where patients are going home the same day and our rehab and our techniques need to adjust and grow and change with the times as well. So in this course, I do hope to bring you some new changes, some ideas, some ways to sort of strategize your treatment plans to really target these new same-day joint replacements that are coming out and coming to us and, and looking for rehab and looking to optimize their rehab routine. So a little bit about the way the a couple things that I'm going to talk about during this podcast. Um, the, one of the things that I'm going to go through is medication management because oftentimes we are the ones as physical therapists that are starting and opening cases. And so we're going through medications with patients, which often used to be the nurses. The nurses would come in and open the cases and go through medications. And if that's still happening in some cases, then we don't have to worry as much about the medication piece. But what is happening more often is that us physical therapists are coming in and we're expected to reconcile and, and look through the medications and go through medications with patients and discuss and talk about them. And even though it's very much within our scope to go through and explain various aspects of medication and, and dosages and things as per their prescription, with patients, we often don't do that as often because it's often covered by nursing. So I do just want to go over that and some things that I like to tell my patients because I find that they often don't know these little things and it can affect how the medication is received. It can affect how the person feels and hopefully ultimately keep them from going, ending up back at their doctor's office or ending up in the hospital because of a medication issue. So that's really our main goal. So we're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about postoperative swelling and ways to um, help patients go through that, as well as any complications that may arise in the home. And then discuss some frequency and goals, activity, ADL participation, and end in some new research in robotics and the digital era that is coming in with joint replacements. So let's start with the medication piece because I think it's a really important piece 
and very often overlooked by overall when we're dealing with our patients. And even if a nurse is in on the case, I still think it's important for physical therapists to be aware of any medication management issues. And here I am saying, I'm saying physical therapists, but occupational therapists as well, because occupational therapists are getting more and more in the front line for joint replacements. And I think we're going to start to see more and more where occupational therapists will start to get in and start opening cases and doing OASIS and other aspects of care that they just haven't quite gotten into yet. But from a standpoint of opening and and coming in being the first person that that the patient sees they really are looking for a lot of education a lot of information from us and oftentimes have many questions and that's really what we're there to do in that first day one of the one of the things that we're really there to do that first day so the medication piece i often find that it's it's quickly overlooked medications are just inputted into the computer and they're just moved on but we're forgetting that patients are taking these medications they're not really given instructions they're given a medicine bottle it has instructions on it but they're not really aware of side effects they're not aware of necessarily how or when to take the medication and many times medications can be overlooked or not really understood what they're for and so when patients don't understand what they're for sometimes they don't even take them so it is part of our job to go through and make sure that patients are taking these medications even if a nurse is involved and a nurse comes in and opens the case, oftentimes it's the physical therapist or the occupational therapist that then takes over and continues to monitor the patient. And the nurse may or may not even come back for another visit. So it is important for us to be asking patients, are they taking their medications properly? Are they having any issues with any medications that they're taking? So I want to point out some of the main things to be aware of because these are sort of the more common medications that patients get placed on post-op. So one of the most common medications that patients get placed on is a narcotic medication. And whether that be a Percocet type of narcotic or a Dilaudid type of narcotic, those tend to be the most common that we see immediately post-op. Patients can become nauseous from this. They can have various side effects, including nightmares. They can also have um, difficulty just kind of feeling very drowsy, very loopy, not themselves on the medication. Now, it is important for them to keep their pain under control. So oftentimes I've come into cases where patients are complaining of severe pain. And then, of course, my question is, when was the last time you took your pain medication? They'll say, oh, well, it gives me really bad side effects or I don't feel good. So I've decided not to take it. Well, now now their pain is not controlled. And if their pain is not controlled, it's going to make it very difficult for us to be able to work with them and do function and ADLs and range of motion and all the other stuff that we need to do from a therapy perspective to get them back on their feet. So, so important to go through um, the pain medication with the patient. And now what's ideal is we're coming in day one. So pretty much we see them either right after they get home from their joint replacement surgery or the following morning. So we see them right in the beginning and we can say it's very important to keep the pain under control. Now I'm sure they're told this in the hospital. I'm sure they're told this in the surgical centers, but when the pain medication 
isn't making them feel good, now they need to, they often just stop taking them and then they're in severe and excruciating pain and it's hard to get that pain under control. So it's really important as we're typing in their medication, as we're typing in that narcotic into the computer saying that they're on a narcotic, that we go through and explain to the patient, listen, it's very important for you to be on the medication. If it's really bothering you or really having an effect on you or you're, not, or you're finding you're taking it and it's not working, it's really important to give the doctor's office a call and let them know that the pain is not controlled. Because what often happens is they don't take their medication, the pain is not controlled, then they call the doctor and the doctor says, well, well, you should be taking your pain medication, right? So we, if we can educate them day one, we can often uh, basically have, have it where our patients are not um, having to contact the doctor that they're in severe, severe pain because we're able to help them control the pain on a much better level. Now, having said that, if our patient is taking two Percocet every four hours and having no relief and still in severe pain, then yes, you you as a therapist or the patient needs to contact the doctor and say, listen, they're taking their pain medication, but they're still in, in severe pain. So what I always tell my patients when it comes to pain is you do have a, you did just have a joint replacement. So considering that you just had a joint replacement, you have to expect that you're going to be in some pain for at least the first week or two and sometimes a little bit longer just depending on the patient. But if you can move and function and walk despite the pain, then the pain is controlled. But if you are not able to move or participate in therapy, then the pain is not being controlled and we need to contact the doctor. We need to find a way to control that pain, whether that be getting them on a good pain schedule for the medication or educating them or having the doctor change the medication. But it's very important that they keep their pain under control so that as the nerve block wears off, and that's the other thing that I always tell my patients, they come home and they're feeling great. They're feeling good because they just had surgery and the nerve block is working. And so they think, well, I'm not in that much pain. I maybe don't need to take my pain medication. Let me wait to see till I'm in pain. So it's a great time to say to them, you're not in pain right now. Nerve block is working. You're feeling pretty good. That's great. However, at some point tonight or tomorrow morning, that nerve block will wear off. And you want to make sure you have some pain meds in your system when that happens. Because otherwise, the pain is very difficult to get under control. And you guys may have already experienced this with some of your patients. I know I have. So giving them that piece of education on the narcotics is really important to make sure. I always tell them, make sure you have something in your system. If it's not a narcotic than something else that the doctor is allowing you to take or has prescribed Tylenol, for example, or something of that nature that, like I said, has been prescribed for the doctor. We cannot tell our patients to take something that is not prescribed and we cannot prescribe anything. So um, as we all know that, that is with, not within our scope of practice. But helping our patients understand why it's important to take the narcotics and or the pain medication in general and the schedule of the pain medication, helping them to come up with a schedule for the pain medication and helping them to keep their pain and make sure the pain is under control is part of our job and is something that's really important to just take a few minutes and touch upon in that first visit. 
the other thing to note is usually patients will come home on some sort of either like a Celebrex or a Meloxicam or some sort of anti-inflammatory medication. And so it's very important to just remind patients that if they're on and have been put on a Celebrex or Meloxicam by their doctor, they cannot take any other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. That means no ibuprofen, no Motrin, no Aleve, no, no Advil. And Many times patients aren't aware of this and they will say, oh, well, Advil helped me better than Tylenol, so I'm just going to take some Advil. It's very important to educate them and say you cannot take Advil because you're on this other anti-inflammatory medication. The other thing is the ibuprofens, can, the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories can also interfere with a blood thinner that they're on potentially, especially if they're on a low-dose aspirin, which tends to be the more common blood thinner that is prescribed for our patients that um, do have the same-day surgeries. So making sure that they're taking their blood thinner the way they need to take it and they don't have any other interactions and they're not taking any other nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories because of the blood thinner and whatever anti-inflammatory that the doctor put them on. The other one that sometimes patients will come home with is, of course, an antibiotic. So that's another very common medication that we see. And I just tell my patients, make sure you take it as prescribed until it runs out. That's really important. And then the last thing to really talk about with patients is constipation. Oftentimes on their discharge paperwork, somewhere written in there, it will say, make sure to add some sort of stool softener into the routine because you could be constipated. But they don't always go through and read all of that. So I like to make sure to go through and say everything that they, between what was given to them at the surgical center and if they're on a narcotic medication, as we know, that could be very constipating. And so it's really important that they make sure that they're either consuming foods that help with constipation or taking something to help with constipation. And this is another one that as I come to revisit within that first week, so day two, day three, day four, as I'm coming back to see the patient, I'm asking them about that. And that's really important because we don't want them to go a week without having a bowel movement because they're taking all of these medications and now they're going to be miserable and uncomfortable and in pain and potentially make themselves prone to a blockage, which would not be a good thing as we know. So all these little things to touch upon. The other thing is just remind them to resume regular medications as their doctor told them. Usually on the discharge paperwork, it says you can go ahead and resume the following medications, making sure that I do take a quick look through those medications and make sure that we aren't interfering with anything else. So sometimes patients would be taking an ibuprofen or another aspirin or another type of blood thinner Oftentimes, they'll have specific instructions from the doctor, so we want to clarify. If there aren't and you notice, so that's another way to pick up errors that sometimes happen. I've had patients that were placed on um, various blood thinners that were also taking another blood thinner, for example, Eliquis, and it's a long-term medication that they've been on, and they will say to me, well, do I take both? We have to call the doctor and we have to clarify because often that's not what the doctors want them to be on two different types of blood thinners. They often change their blood thinner for a short time post-op, and we know that. 
So we need to call the doctor and get that clarified. The other thing about going through the medications that allows you to do is to make sure they're on a blood thinner. I've had cases that I've come across where it was just missed for some reason or another, just another way to look, you know, errors happen. Certainly we've all been, um, you know, had errors that have happened. And so it's important to be able to catch or find if something does if you notice something arise. So that's one thing that I always look for is to make sure there is a some sort of blood thinner in their routine. And oftentimes, um, or I shouldn't say oftentimes, seldom times, a few times I have found that they can be overlooked. And then I call the doctor's office and they say, oh, no, 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 we definitely want them on a low dose aspirin twice a day. Sorry if it wasn't in the paperwork. So that's another thing just for us to be aware of that we need to make sure that our patients are doing because we know that that's an important piece post-op. The other thing about vitamins um, or medications that I want to go through is vitamins and supplements that patients might be on. Some vitamins and supplements can interact with various medications. So when a patient asks me, can I resume my regular vitamin schedule? Of course, my answer is going to be you need to check with your doctor because not all vitamins and supplements are something that the doctor wants the patient taking immediately after surgery. So some doctors will say 10 days post-op patients can resume. Some doctors say five days post-op and some doctors don't have an issue with them taking their medications. But again, the vitamins with the medications. But that's not something we can change or adjust. So really important to be able to reconcile these medications, go through the medications with the patients, talk through the medications, make sure they understand them, make sure that they have their routine with them. And if we find any issues, to be contact contacting the doctor and notifying notifying them and having them reconcile them with us. So that's all part of that medication management piece that oftentimes we as PTs or OTs really aren't used to because this is what the nurses are doing when they come in on the cases. But when we don't have a nurse and oftentimes in these same day joint replacements, we don't, right? We just, it's, it's a PT or an OT run case. And so it is now our job to be able to come in and start going through these medications with, with our patients and reconciling them and giving them the information that they need on them. So the next little thing that I want to go into here is post-operative swelling and just general incision care. So that's another area that oftentimes incision and incision care, even staple removal, is left to the nurses. And now we're finding it put sort of on our plates and Oftentimes the PT is responsible or the OT is responsible for caring for the incision, making sure the incision looks clean, intact, and possibly even depending on the doctor, some doctors require staple removal as, as part of that piece of the puzzle. So it's important for us to be able to look and recognize and, and understand just as we would in, in regular wound care or a evaluating or assessing any type of regular wound, um, we would do the same thing with the postoperative incisions. So there's different types of closures that we see. There's also different types of incisions that we will see. And for example, the knee incision, they now, instead of doing a linear approach across the knee, many times some of the surgeons now are using this curve linear approach, which sort of goes just um, lateral 
around the lateral area of the knee instead of right through the midline, which allows for what what research has shown de- a little bit of decreased pain and just improved mobility with um, the placement of the incision. So you'll see some of the surgeons starting to do more of that curve linear approach. Another thing is the sutures and staples that they use. So oftentimes, more and more and more, we're seeing glue used or even the um, this type of enclosure. And I included a picture. It's basically a zip tie enclosure. So the, in, the surgeon puts the enclosure on and then pulls with like a little zip tie, pulls the incision closed and then cuts off the loose part of the zip tie. And then in about two weeks, he just peels off the whole thing and it makes for nice and easy removal without having the pain or discomfort of staple removal. So we might see all of these different options. The main thing, whether the incision is left open, and some doctors will leave the incision open, or whether the incision is covered, or whether we are responsible to remove the bandage and assess the incision at a certain day, for example, post-op day 7, post-op day 10, post-op day 14, whatever the instructions are, it's really important to follow them with the surgeon. And if it's unclear, oftentimes it is on the discharge paperwork, but sometimes it's not very clear. And so again, that's our opportunity to call the office and make sure that we clarify whatever the doctor is expecting as far as staple removal or bandage removal or general incision post-op care. And those are just some things that we need to be aware of. And as you work with similar doctors, the same doctors in your area, you sort of get used to their techniques and their ways and what they prefer for their patients. And But if you get somebody that a doctor or surgeon that you don't often see patients from, you want to make sure and clarify. And it also gives you the opportunity to build a relationship because if you reach out for the doc to the doctor and say, oh, I'm the physical therapist or occupational therapist. I'm working with your patient. I just want to know what your post-op protocol for this or this. I just want to make sure that I'm following it when I see your patients because I haven't had many of your patients before. This is my first uh, patient from your office. I really appreciate the referral, whatever, however you want to word it. But the doctor is going to appreciate that you reached out to to them and oftentimes we start with the front desk staff and the front desk staff will transfer us so whether it be I've had many a time where the front desk staff has transferred me and the surgeon has picked up and it's a great opportunity to talk to them and sort of get a feel for what they're expecting from a post-op standpoint from a rehab standpoint and um, to really build a relationship with that physician because if they remember you and remember that you reached out, they're going to be more likely to reach out to you or your agency or the agency that you work for because they're going to want to send their patients. They're going to say, oh, they know what I want. They know what to, what, how, what I expect with my patients. And that's a nice way to sort of reach out and build a relationship. But either way, we want to make sure that we're taking a look at the incision, that patients are showing us the incision. Even if it's completely covered, um, we still want to be checking that incision. Of course, we want it to be clean and dry. It is normal to have some spotting or some blood staining on the bandages, but if it's 
saturated or leaking or wet in any way, we always need to make sure that we're telling the patients to call the physician. And many times I've gone in, found that the dressing was leaking and called the office right away for the patient. And the, the surgeon's office says, bring, tell them to come right in or tell them to come in in an hour. And they just go in and they get the dressing replaced because we don't want to breed um, any type of potential for any bacteria or infection to build up. So those are just, you know, some things that we're looking for on when we're looking at these incisions and assessing the incisions. The other thing we want to talk to our patients about is potentially showering, right? Because our patients do want to shower after surgery. And if the incision is covered, and usually at least for the first couple days of surgery, the incision is covered and the instructions as far as getting the bandage wet are in the discharge paperwork. So again, if you're unclear, I always have them call the office. But most of our orthopedics in the area, they are using bandages that are waterproof. And I tell my patients, if you're concerned about getting the bandage wet, if you're concerned about water getting in, they could always saran wrap the area when they go into the shower. And of course, we want to make sure that we tell them no scrubbing of the area, no scrubbing around the area because the skin tends to be discolored because of the betadine and everything that they use to sterilize the area the day of surgery. And patients, of course, many of them want to wash that off. So I, I try to discourage them from doing that. I try to tell them, leave it alone. Don't play with it too much in the shower. Just Take your shower and just, you know, do as you would and let the water just kind of wash off and fall away. Don't scrub that area at all and then just pat it dry. And that's really the ideal. So we want to make sure that on that first visit, that's one of the things that we do discuss with the incision is just general incision care and especially getting it wet and is it okay to get it wet or not, and um, how to keep it covered if they do want to take a shower. Because often these patients, they're pretty mobile right from day one. And so many of them, within a day or two, they want to take a shower. So they have surgery maybe on a Monday. By Wednesday, they want to take a shower. So we want to make sure that we're giving them the information that they need to be able to safely take a shower without harming or um, potentially um, having any issue in, in the area. Um, if the bandage is uncovered, if the incision is uncovered, it's very important to find out what the doctor wants as far as specifics for post-op showering because patients want to know it and sometimes if we don't give them the right instructions some of them will just do it and then they risk having an issue and that's really what we're there to avoid that's really our main goal in in coming in and working with our patients and that's why so much instruction and education I find is of such an important piece in that first visit because we need to make sure that we're telling our patients and instructing our patients properly to set them up properly because that first visit just coming back from the hospital we are really giving them this plethora of information to sort of I always kind of say set them on the right foot to start the right way immediately post-op and by being there and giving them that correct information and sort of setting them up we're hopefully potentially warding off 
any issues that could arise down the road, right? We're, we're sort of trying to ward off any potential things. And certainly things do come up, but by giving them that knowledge and taking the time to go through all these different little kind of tidbits can really save the patient a lot of time, sometimes agony and discomfort, and really help them through those initial days of rehab, which I really feel is not only the what necessitates the PT or the OT to sort of be there in those first couple of days, but also to potentially allow them sort of a step ahead in what's needed from a rehab process. So unfortunately, even with education and and everything that we provide every time we go to see our patients, there are complications that may arise and so it's important that we are aware of them and we understand what is potentially normal and what sort of is a flag so that we can catch that flag and say, no, 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 that's, that's not good. Let's, let's make sure we get you referred out or contact the doctor. So some complications that are pretty normal and really freak patients out, one of the biggest ones is bruising and discoloration. And this happens, usually comes out two, three days post-op. The more active the person is, the faster this tends to come out. And they might have it, depending on if they had a total hip replacement or total knee replacement, they might have it in the posterior part of the leg. They might have it kind of in the inner thigh area. Sometimes it comes down even into the ankle area and it can be pretty profound. And when patients see this, they sort of get very concerned. Oftentimes I will get texts sometimes from my patients at 3 a.m. that just happened to notice that their leg was black and blue with a bunch of ecchymosis all over the place. And so I reassure my patients and tell them this is very common. And that sometimes is another thing I will throw in that first day and say, you might find some general bruising and discoloration that happens in the back, in the front, on the side of the leg, down the leg. If you see that, do not panic, do not worry. That is normal because when it's discovered, it can be very unnerving to the patient. The patient thinks something is potentially wrong, but it really, really isn't. And so we want to make sure that we tell our patients and, and, you know, help our patients to understand that that could be normal. The other thing that often, often happens within fairly quickly is that the area will get a little bit warm. And as soon as the area gets warm, of course, patients start to panic that it's potentially infected. It can sometimes even get a slight reddening of the skin and the warmth and the reddening slight without any fever, without any other symptoms, is is fairly normal for post-op recovery, especially within the first couple of days. Also, of course, swelling, normal within the first couple of days. Oftentimes, patients come home the first day, they still have the nerve block, swelling hasn't set in because as we know, 24 to 48 hours is that window of when swelling really starts to set in post-op. And so patients come in to, or come home and we come to see them and they're feeling pretty good. So giving them that warning of 
the swelling is going to hit. The pain is going to hit 24 to 48 hours from now. Day one, day two, day three, probably going to be tougher days than they are today is really important to let the patient know that so that they can make sure that they're icing properly. If the surgeon has an icing protocol, they're using that. They can make sure that they're elevating per instruction. And certainly it's important to elevate and it's also important to have some activity as well. And having that balance is really important. And oftentimes I find that patients either overdo it or underdo it. We really want this middle of the road with our patients, right? We want this ideal optimal amount of movement with an optimal amount of rest so that there's not too much swelling, So, but yet there's also enough motion to allow for function and activity. And so many of my patients will tell me, well, I know I'm supposed to move, but how much is too much? I don't want to overdo it. Or how much is too little? I don't want to underdo it. And that's really a tough question in a sense, because it's kind of what is the optimal amount of activity versus non-activity? Because we know that non-activity post-op, especially after a joint replacement, could lead to complications such as a blood clot. And that's certainly something that we don't want to happen with our patients. In fact, patients that have same-day joint replacement surgery and go home versus patients that stay in a hospital or go to rehab have less um, chance of getting a blood clot. And that is simply because they tend to be more active and move more post-surgery. So telling our patients that it is really important for them to be getting up and moving. And I tell my patients every hour... Every hour during the day, at night they can sleep, but every hour during the day, they should be getting up and moving and doing a lap. Now, I assess their house and I'll say to them whether that be a lap around their kitchen island or a, a lap down the hallway and back or whatever whatever area that I see. And certainly one of the things that we go over day one that we use either their walker, their cane, whatever device that they're using. We go through gait, normalizing gait, and we talk about the importance of walking and getting up at least every hour to be moving around. Now, sometimes patients will say to me, well, can I do more than that? Well, of course, the answer to that is it depends. And what it depends on is A, how they're feeling, their pain level, and their swelling. So in the first one to two days, so 24 to 48 hours, the swelling is just developing. And we really don't want to do too much more than that because what could happen is if they overdo it, they could end up really swollen and really uncomfortable by day two or three. So there is a potential for doing too much. So I'll tell them one or two laps is enough every hour for one for the first day or two. Then we'll take a look at your swelling and we'll see how the body's responding and we'll go from there for step two. Because we don't, there's no secret formula, there's no exact what's right or wrong, right? As we know, each patient is different. That's why they need us there to guide and to instruct them on safety and and what to do and, and how to do it properly. And so as we know, 
we need to be able to change accordingly. And so that's really what I will say to my patients is let's see, let's try this and let's see how it is. And I will say to them, if they are telling me they're in severe, severe, severe pain, I will say at least try to get up once and just walk back around the island and come back and sit down at least once. Many, many, many times, the first couple of steps, the beginning is tough, but the more they do, the better they feel. And I really have to try to get my patients to buy into that belief because as you may have already noticed with many of your patients, the more they move, the better they tend to feel. And patients that sort of don't move as much tend to get stiffer and tighter and tend to be in more pain. So movement is really, really, really important. I just stress it that within the first 24 to 48 hours where swelling is still developing, that they don't go too much too fast in that piece. And then I will say to them, especially my patients that really want to get active, really want to get back into the routine and everything, then I'll say, let's reassess on day three, four, see where your swelling is. And by then you can definitely start doing more. And oftentimes I have patients by day three or four that are walking up for five, 10, even 15 minutes and then sitting back down and icing and and that's not unusual. So again, it depends on the patient, but it is really important to address all these issues day one to avoid some of these potential complications, for example, like a blood clot. I did include in the attachments, if you look under the attachments here in the podcast, I did include um, a little kind of a more active way to monitor for DVTs if you are concerned with your patient. It's a clinical note that was comprised to sort of be more effective than potentially a the old Homan sign, which is all we really had in the past. And we look for some other signs and symptoms. So if you kind of look at the what I have included in the attachments, you'll see that there's some points. And what you do is you assess your patient and then you give them one point for anything that is on the left-hand side. So for example, the first one is says active cancer. So if they have happen to have an active cancer, then you would give them a point. If not, it's zero. Um, paralysis, paresis, recent plaster, immobilization of the lower extremity. If they really are not moving their leg and they're keeping it extremely, extremely stiff, they might be getting a point for this. If they're overall moving, doing their exercises and, and going through the motion, going through their activities frequently, then maybe they will stay a zero for that. The third one is recently bedridden for more than three days or major surgery within 12 weeks requiring general or regional anesthesia. Most patients will be one for that. So most of my patients will get a one because they just had major surgery, joint replacements. Even though they're same days, they're still considered a major surgery. That, that occurs and so that they would get a point for that. Second one, localized tenderness along the distribution of the DVT system. And so again, are they having any tenderness in the calf, in the back of the leg? This could be a one, this could be a zero, just depends on the patient. Entire leg swollen. Again, you'd give your patients a one because most of my patients, whether they had a hip replacement or a knee replacement, their leg tends to be swollen a couple days in. The next one is calf swelling three centimeters larger than the other side. So you get your tape measure out and you kind of see, do I give them a point for that or not? The next one, pitting edema, 
confined to the symptomatic leg. So check for pitting edema. Next is collateral superficial veins and then any previous document of a DVT or any, and those are everything that you would give a point to if you're assessing. The last little piece here says an alternative diagnosis that's at least as likely as a DVT. And for that, you take two points away. So what that means is your our patients, they just had a joint replacement. So they do have another diagnosis that really could equate for tenderness and swelling and all the symptoms that of a potential DVT. And so you're going to take two points away. So if you said that their entire leg is swollen, and if you said that they had recent surgery, right? So that was two points. They got two points on the chart. Then you looked and you said, well, they did just have joint replacement surgery. So now I'm going to take two points away. And now their score is zero. And let's say you also said their entire leg um, is swollen or that they had um, pain along the distribution of the deep venous system. So now they have three points. Again, you're still going to take away two points because they have a diagnosis that's at least as likely as a DVT. So they're really only getting a zero or a one. And if you look at the way that you score it, a DVT, if they have a one point or less, is unlikely. But if they have two points or more, it is potentially likely. And the study that looked at this and used this as a test said that they should be referred out for further testing. So it, it's a nice way. It's a nice little easy um, thing to just reference when you're in with the patient and quickly do and see, okay, is this something that we really do need to contact the doctor? Or is this something that is is potentially related to the surgery and we are, are not concerned. So DVT mon monitoring is something that we do have to be aware of as always of potential complication. The other complications that sometimes can occur, patients can spike fevers. And again, this is one of those maybe complications because if they spike a fever at night, the fever stays below 101.5 and the fever basically is gone by morning then probably not anything to be too concerned about happens very frequently in patients and it's another thing that I will mention on the start of care visit is say well it's not unusual for a patient to have a fever and overnight don't worry as long as it stays below 101.5. However, if the fever spikes above 101.5 and continues and doesn't subside, then that is a sign that they do need to call the doctor and probably go in and see the doctor to see what is potentially going on. So all of these things that we sort of have to address and look at with our patients. And, and another thing to just sort of keep in the back of your mind too, going back to wounds and incisions that could happen from a complication standpoint, is that if a patient, some patients will come home with one of those wound vacs that gets removed after a certain number of days. So if you look at the wound vac, it usually has green lights 
and the green lights signify how many days it has to be on and when the green lights go all the way down to just one light or no lights that's when it can come off and they usually have to head back to the doctor's office to get that removed so we do want to make sure that patients that do have a wound back that their wound back is empty it doesn't have a lot of drainage that's coming out of it and if it is they might need to have the canister in the wound back replaced which may or may not require a nurse it may require them to go back to the doctor to have that done but they really should not be having a significant amount of drainage from that wound back so it is something that we do need to be aware of as a potential complication so all these little things that we we are responsible for when we are case managing these same day joint replacements and things that we need to be aware of and things that we need to be documenting that we've checked and looked at, assessed wound back, assessed incision, incision area, clean, intact, all of these little things because we do want to make sure that we are actively assessing and and covering them with our patients to potentially avoid any of these complications that could occur. So the next thing that I really would like to talk about is visit frequency and goals with our same-day joint replacement patients. These patients often are very high-level patients and they often will go to outpatient transition to outpatient therapy very quickly within a few visits within a week's time some even go directly to outpatient some surgeons will with certain patients now have even started doing same day joint replacements sending them home and sending them to outpatient within a day or two because they're finding they're not really homebound they're able to get out and about they're able to um, obviously have somebody drive them over to outpatient and they're getting them as, as active as possible. And we know that activity level helps to decrease the potential ability, potential complication of having a DVT. So there is a lot of benefit to, to that piece of the puzzle too. But not all patients are at the level where they can pretty much go outpatient day one. And so it's really our goal as the therapist seeing them post-op and if they're having same-day joint surgery it's usually going to tend to be the home health therapist that is coming in to see them post-op especially for that first week so I like to tell my patients the purpose why I'm coming in that first week and whether I'm there one time, two times, five times, six times, that might depend on your doctor, that might depend on what the agency recommends, and that might depend on what is kind of standard in, in, in general and, of course, your expertise on what the patient needs. So all of those factors sort of come into play. But I like to make sure that my patients understand the purpose of, of why I'm coming. And our general goal for these patients is really to get them comfortable with activity, ADLs, and inside their house, comfortable with activity outside their house, so their IADLs, getting in and out of their home, getting in and out of their car. So basically being able to get to a position where they no longer feel that they are homebound. They are able to leave their house without difficulty, with 
and get in and out of a car so that they are no longer homebound. And that's really our goal. And that tends to happen on a much quicker basis with these orthopedic patients. And so what when I talk to my patients and I help them to understand that I'm really there from for that functional piece. And of course, throughout that week, the second thing, so we're there for function, we're there to get them no longer homebound, and we're there to give them the first stages, the first steps to be able to avoid complications and set them, get them on the right foot, so to speak, for therapy. So if, if they're a total knee replacement, for example, we want to make sure that we're looking at range of motion and they understand the importance of full extension and they understand the importance of flexion and why it's painful and why it's important to do that. And I really try to get pretty much the majority of my patients that once I'm discharging them, which is usually about seven days, so I saw them day one, I tend to have about four visits and I'm discharging by day seven, by day eight, nine or 10, they're going outpatient. And that tends to be a very general rule of thumb. Again, we know that everybody's different, but I really do encourage my patients, even the ones that sort of push for more home care sometimes, it studies have shown that getting outpatient earlier and getting more active earlier does improve recovery and does decrease post-op complications. So sometimes patients need a little nudge, but they are able to do it and they surprise themselves when we're there to kind of push them into that. Of course, as long as within our expertise, they're safe and they're ready. So it, it is important to sort of set right from the get-go, this is my purpose and this is why I'm here. And we're going to get into that piece of the puzzle, which sort of changes, right? We used to kind of come in and, and we're still there doing exercise and activity and function, but it sort of has changed into more of this functional approach, more of this, I'm really here to get you on that right foot and to get you to be able to be comfortable going out of the home and going to rehab, I mean, going to outpatient. And that's really what we're there for that proper transition to happen safely and appropriately. And that's why it's so important for them to understand the medication piece. It's so important for them to understand the functional piece, the movement piece, and have their pain under control for all of that to happen. And that's really what we're in there to do um, in, in those first couple of visits. So as far as ADL participation restrictions, Patients that are undergoing total hip precautions are having various restrictions and it's really based on the approach the orthopedist uses. Because as we know now, we don't just have a posterior approach, posterior lateral, which was the old approach. Now we have a lateral, an anterior lateral and an anterior approach. And all of these approaches come with different precautions. And even within those precautions, some surgeons like to add their own precautions. So that's another area where we do need to be aware of general precautions. So for example, our posterior hip precautions, as we all know, right? No bending past 90 degrees, no crossing your legs, no internal rotation of the hip. Everybody knows those precautions. However, if a patient has an anterior hip replacement, they don't have those precautions. Their precautions are no hip extension 
So oftentimes we have to show them to bend and kind of go lateral um, in, that, in that area instead of going posterior to bend. And also many times no straight leg raise for patients with an anterior hip anterior hip replacement. As far as a lateral hip replacement, oftentimes lateral movement can be restricted by the surgeon. So we really need to be aware of the approaches that our surgeons are using. We need to be able to recognize these approaches and we need to be able to give our patients the right precautions. Because the last thing we want to do is to be coming in there giving them posterior total hip precautions when the patient had an anterior hip right? That just doesn't, and oftentimes the patient is told something different and then they get very confused and it, and it throws them off and it doesn't look good on us either. So being aware of the precautions and the restrictions, which have changed significantly over the years is really important when you're working with joint replacements. And again, it's a great phone call to really get to know the doctor and say, oh, what approach are you using? And what specific, are there any specific precautions that you would like me to add regarding that approach? And how the doctor, they would be more, usually they're more than ecstatic to talk about the approach that they're using, why they use that particular approach. Keep in mind that most surgeons do multiple approaches. And that is because not every approach can be done on every single person. And so they need to be able to do various approaches. So you might have a surgeon that does mostly anterior approach, anterior approach, anterior approach. And then all of a sudden you get a patient and they have a posterior incision. So they obviously did not do an anterior approach. So really important to go through that post-op discharge paperwork, really important to go through and understand the approach that the surgeon is using and be able to let the patient know that approach. Sometimes they're already aware of it, but many times they're not. And oftentimes because they have friends that had a different approach, so they might have had a friend that had a posterior approach and said, oh, you need to have this raised toilet seat and you have to sleep with a pillow between your legs. And here they had an anterior hip replacement and they think, oh, well, my friend told me I need to do all of this. And you're saying, well, no, that's because they probably had a posterior hip replacement, you had an anterior hip replacement, and these are your precautions which are different. So, so many times it's very, very important to clarify that approach and go through that with your patients because there can be different different little things that the surgeon wants. For example, some of the surgeons that do an anterior approach still like their patients to not bend past 90 degrees just for the first seven to, to 10 days or so until they see them post-op and then they take away precautions. So there's so many different little things that the surgeons um, will prefer and that's why it's so important to know and understand their approaches. If you work with a lot of different surgeons, and sometimes it's hard to uh, have everybody straight, it's really nice to have sort of a spreadsheet of this surgeon or this office has this approach and, and wants this with their patients and th this one wants that. And if you're working with an agency or you're working within an office, I often encourage them to make sheets and to keep track of what it is that each surgeon in each area is looking for because that will help new therapists that are coming on board, that will help to answer questions, and it will limit the need to have a lot of people calling the surgeon because it's good to 
kind of get that in with the surgeon, have them understand, but certainly the offices don't want 10 different therapists calling because 10 different therapists saw their, their same patient. That would get very frustrating. So we do want to make sure that we're passing the information along and sharing so that our surgeons are happy and so that our patients are happy because that's really important, right? The last thing that I want to talk about when I talk about same-day surgery is robotic-assisted surgery and, and digital devices. Robotic-assisted surgery is getting more and more popular. There's a, some research showing there's improved longevity in the joint when the joint is performed more precisely than a human would be able to do it, that the surfaces have improved contact and improved overall lifespan of the equipment. And that's always a good thing, especially since patients are appear to be getting younger and younger that are getting joint replacements annually. So we often see these robot-assisted surgeries. Now, oftentimes a patient will have a second incision somewhere whether that be below or above, and it, it will also be either sutured or stapled or closed shut in some way, and sometimes it's covered and sometimes it's not. So really important to keep an eye on that second incision as well. Oftentimes, it tends to drain a little bit. Some doctors will say just replace the gauze. Just keep replacing the gauze as it drains and give it some pressure. Some doctors like them to come into the office and have it replaced. But it's not unusual for where the robot was sort of anchored for that little area to leak. And you can kind of see in, if you look at the pictures that I included um, with the attachments on this podcast, you can sort of see why there's sort of this anchor piece that goes in, whether it, I included a hip and a knee one, so you can see what that looks like from the robotic end. And it's just kind of pinned in and attached to the bone above or below to sort of give the a stability point for the robot. And then it's removed, obviously, post-op. And then when our patients come home, they have all of these new devices that we might see. One that I really, really like if your patients have access to is this ice machine that not only can you change the temperature of the ice, so some doctors don't want their patients to have cold, cold, cold ice. They, they Some don't even like ice because there is some research that shows too much cold can be detrimental. So this machine not only allows the surgeon to pre-program the level of coldness, they also allow, the surgeon also pre-programs the amount of time that they spend on the ice and the ice machine turns on and off on a 10-hour cycle automatically. They do not need to fill it with ice or change the ice. It's automatically cold and it gives some compression with the ice. So I have found that patients that have this machine in general do appear to have overall less swelling that I've noticed. It's not always an end-all be-all, but just being in and and seeing patients and, and the amount of joint replacement patients that I see in a day and in a week post-op that I really have seen a difference in patients that tend to have this machine versus some of the other ice machines. But any type of ice machine is good, especially one that wraps around. What I don't like is when my patients just kind of have an ice pack that they throw on, especially if it's a knee. Less so for a hip, but especially for a knee, 
a wrap around ice pack. I really try to encourage that for my patients because I think that really does help to minimize post-op swelling. And it's nice because they can sleep in it too. So that's a really cool little machine that patients can get and have potentially have access to. Another thing that you might see in the home are these new range of motion bikes. So Back in the day when we had our CPM machines, those are long gone. We don't use those anymore. They have not been shown effective in the research. But this is sort of the new day and age of the CPM. But it's a bike. And the bike has a computer screen like seen in the picture, if if you're looking at the picture here. And basically, initially, the bike actually moves your feet, the patient's feet for them. And where the pedals are, are a little bit closer. So the range of motion is a little smaller. So they start this post-op day one. And it starts, the first cycle is about a 10-minute cycle. And it moves their feet for them for that initial range of motion. And it's, it's completely digital. So they put in their pain level. They put in how they feel. If they put in the pain level too high, the bike will not allow them to go on it. So their pain level does have to be controlled. The bike also communicates with a device that's on their leg so they can see how much range of motion they're getting and the improvement in range of motion over time. And the bike communicates to the doctor's office so the doctor knows how many times they're doing the bike. It also communicates sometimes to the insurance company and the insurance company to pay for the bike requires the patient to use it within 24 or 48 hours or whatever the parameters are of use in order for the insurance company to cover it. So all of those little things the patient needs to be made aware of and they often are by the company. The company comes in and sets it up. So if a patient has a bike, I don't set them up or do that piece of it. That's not part of my specific therapy. But oftentimes I will say, are you using the bike? How often are you using the bike? How's it working out? And sort of encourage them to use it. They can use it up to five times a day. Again, if the patient is swollen, Uh, or, or having a lot of pain or a lot of discomfort, I will sort of minimize that. If the patient is doing well, progressing well, I will encourage them to do more. So it it is patient specific, but it's a great little tool to have. And then there's a lot of different apps that patients can go through and look at with various exercises. They show the exercise. So if you want to leave your patient with an exercise program, but want to make sure that they're following it appropriately, you can set them up with an app and they can follow that app to do their exercises and it will track it for them too and say, okay, you did it once a day or twice a day and you can put in those parameters for them so they can follow. So all nifty little things to sort of guide us and sort of have this adjunct for us to be able to just improve our session with our patients and improve their overall ability to participate and, and do their activities and have a way to be a little bit more accountable for the activities that they're doing. So I love all of them. I know there's more and more coming out. So it's exciting to sort of have these resources available to us and to our patients. So with that, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to my podcast on same-day joint replacements. I hope that you got some information, some ideas, some new things to sort of what I like to say, put in your therapy bag when you go and you work with these patients. And I thank you very much for your time. 
Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.